I'd like you to turn with me, please, if you have a Bible close to hand, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we are going to read from verse 18 to verse 39, which is the end of this chapter. The Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution 
or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for these wonderful words. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me back and not forgetting me. And uh, it's lovely to come back and see how everybody's doing and everybody seems to be maturing nicely. So uh, it's a pleasure to be worshipping with you today. May God continue to bless you as you go into the good future that God has purposed. About 20 years ago, there used to be an advertisement in British commercial television. And as I recall it, it was for the Guardian newspaper, of which you've probably heard. And it was a fantastic piece of communication, as advertisements often can be. It only lasted 30 seconds, but within those 30 seconds, it showed you the same scene three times over. And in the first 10 seconds, we imagine ourselves to be, or we are, in the presentation in London, probably in the city, watching a well-dressed young man cross a square, wearing a suit, tie, like me, not like you, carrying a briefcase. We imagine he's on his way to work, probably as a lawyer or as a stockbroker or in insurance or something like that. Suddenly another young man, a very different kind of young man, runs towards him. This young man has got a shaven head, not an honorably bald head such as some people have, (laughs) but a shaven head. He's got large boots on his feet, he's got jeans and they're rolled up to his knees, And he runs towards the young man and he knocks him over. And we draw a conclusion. We imagine that the young man with the shaven head is up to no good, that he's mugging that young man with the suit and the briefcase, and he's probably wanting to run off with whatever is in the briefcase and enrich himself. The scene ends. And now we see the same scene from a a different angle. This time we're further round. We're on the flat And we can see something that we did not see previously, namely that behind the young man with the shaven head, a large car draws up. In the front seat, there are two beefy men dressed in suits. It seems as if the young man with the shaven head notices them and runs in the opposite direction. And he knocks over the other young man not to rob him of his briefcase, but just because he happens to be in the way as he is fleeing from, well, the local mafia in the city or possibly the CID. They're pretty much the same thing, I'm told, in the city. (laughs) 
and we change our interpretation. And now we're shown the same scene in the final 10 seconds, and this time we're in a very different place. We're high up, we're on one of the tall buildings in the city. We're looking down upon the scene as it unfolds before us. And now we can see what we could not previously see. We can see that above the young man with the briefcase, there is a crane. From that crane, a load is suspended. And that load is in the process of slipping. And if it does slip, it will land upon the young man with the briefcase and crush him to death. And now we realize what really is going on here. It's not that the man with the shaven head is wanting to mug him. It's not that he's running away from authority or a threat and knocking him over in his flight. It is that he sees what is about to happen. And he runs towards the young man to knock him out of the way and save his life. And he does so at the cost or at the risk of his own. And then the caption comes across the screen. The Guardian gives you the right perspective on things. <laughs> and we are left re repenting of our prejudice against young men with, sha young men with shaven heads and large boots. And perhaps we go out and buy the Guardian, or perhaps not. Now, I love that advertisement, because it tells me a great deal. It tells me that how we interpret events very much depends upon where we're standing, upon the perspective that we occupy. Now, I can't be the only person in this room today who finds the world in which I live a perplexing place. Most of the time, I don't really know what's going on. And that's because I don't have the perspective. I don't have the full understanding that would enable me to see what events mean. Many of us are going through that process in relation to the European Union at the moment. We hear one thing, we hear another, and few of us possess the kind of light, knowledge that enables us to make an easy decision. And that's true of life generally, in my experience at least. And I have to say it's also true of my life in particular. That sometimes I look back upon my life and I don't know what to make of some of the things that have happened to me along the way. Some of those things are relatively straightforward, but others don't seem to fit. I don't know why they had to be, and I struggle with them. I also have to say that from time to time, as the aging process continues and I am chronologically enhanced, um, that some things do begin to fit. Some things that I didn't like, that happened to me years ago, I now begin to perceive some kind of meaning in them, that they do somehow fit in the tapestry of my own life. But even so, I am persuaded that I will go to my death in 50 years' time um, with loose ends, with things that are outstanding in terms of my understanding. Anybody following me so far? Is this making sense to anybody? Perspective determines interpretation. How we understand what happens depends upon where we stand. Now, one of the great things about this passage, Romans chapter 8, which I'm sure you will agree with me, is a great passage. 
is that it's like a great mountain peak rising from the plain of the New Testament. There are a number of similar peaks, of course, in the New Testament. But of all the passages in the New Testament, this surely is not only an outstanding piece of human literature, it's also an outstanding piece of Christian theology. It's like a mighty peak, like a high building. And when we stand on the basis of this chapter, we have greater understanding. We have more perspective as to what things mean, as to how things fit, as to where we've come from and where we're going to. And I want to bring out just a few things because there are so many things in this passage that might help us today. And the first thing is to say this. That there really is a purpose to this world. There really is an underlying purpose to this confusing world in whose drama we are participating today. Or putting it differently, there is an overarching purpose. The world is going somewhere and was always intended to go somewhere. It is a purposeful world. We have come, according to this passage and, of course, many others in the Bible, from God. And we are returning to God. And this God, who frames our existence, has a purpose for this world. And it's important to know what that purpose is. Because when we live according to what it's all about then we live at our best. When we're in harmony with God's purpose for creation and us within that creation, then we can live lives which are truly good lives, resonating with the, the fabric of the universe, resonating with the very purpose of God. And of course, we've come here today to worship God and not least to remind ourselves what it's all about, to remind ourselves what we are all about, and if we've strayed, to bring ourselves, with God's help and with each other's help, back into line with the love of God and participation in his purpose. Now I'm saying this, and as I say it, I'm very, very conscious that not everybody agrees with this way of seeing things. You may have noticed that. We live in a world where this truth is a contested truth. Where every day, if you have ears to hear, you will hear people contradicting it. You will hear people denying it. You will hear people stating um, an opposite or an alternative. And that alternative, generally, uh, seems to me to be accepted in our culture, is that the world is actually a meaningless world that it doesn't come from somewhere, and it's not going anywhere. It's a big accident. It's shapeless. And we've undergone in the recent years, in our own culture, what somebody has called the theft of meaning. We are told that life is meaningless. It's just an accident, and there's no point in looking for a meaning or looking for a narrative that will explain why things actually are. But that's very difficult to take because actually most of us 
find it very difficult to live without some kind of meaning. Most of us need a purpose. Actually, I would say all of us do. If you didn't have some kind of purpose in life, you would give up. You would just die. Or you would take your own life. Because there is no reason for living. And so what we tend to do, what everybody tends to do, us included, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong in this of itself, is we create meaning. We find something to live for. We choose something that we will set our hopes on. And we'll make the reason for our existence. Most of us find that our families are the the best thing that we can locate. We live for our children or our grandchildren or if for each other or for our community. And we make human relationships the purpose for our existence. Not a bad thing to do. Or others make a career their reason for living. They choose a career. They feel that that's how they can best contribute to the well-being of humanity. And they dedicate themselves to fulfilling that career. Or some people, and I fail to understand this completely, although perhaps uh, there's a degree of sympathy for it, but not much. Some people choose a football team to live for. And uh, they make that team the way they define their lives. Everything revolves around that particular football team. Have you ever met anybody like this? It's a very, very sad thing. And so Leicester City at the moment, God bless them, uh, or Manchester United, uh, who won yesterday, um, just a note in passing, uh, yeah, we live for, they live for this team. They name their children after the players, which gets increasingly complex these days with so many foreign players. When they die, they ask to be cremated, and then their ashes to be scattered on the park. And that is the sum total of what they are all about. As I say, I find it hard to understand. But I'm not against the game of football. Now, there's a a program on the television which I get sight of from time to time. It's been on for years. It's called Grand Designs. Has anybody seen this program? This is where um, somebody buys a house or a plot of land or some old ruin somewhere in France or in the border between Scotland and England or some uh, strange-shaped plot in the middle of London, and they make it their purpose to do something with this building or this plot of land, and it's absolutely phenomenal what people do, renovating old French chateaus, or making a house out of uh, driftwood, or making something out of completely renewable materials, and they spend their energies and their money, and one shudders to think how much money, on this project. Uh, it's very impressive. I could never do it personally because I don't have the DIY skills or the money for that matter. But you can see why people do it. They're doing something which is unique that only they can lay claim to. They're leaving a footprint in the sands of time. And out of that they gain satisfaction that they've made a difference to the very fabric of the universe. And they've planted their feet firmly on the ground. But, you see, there is a difference, a big difference, between finding meaning in life, which is not wrong, and finding the meaning of life, 
you get the difference between those two things? Finding meaning in life, which I create for myself, and finding the meaning of life, the meaning that God gives to life, the purpose that God creates for this world. And if there is a meaning to life, it's something we ought to know about. Now, one way in which this is indicated here is, for instance, in verses 20 to 21. It speaks about the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, that's one way, and there are many ways in which, in the New Testament, God's purpose is stated. God's purpose is to set this decaying and dying world free from its bondage to decay in order that it, along with us, may share in the glorious liberty that God wills to give, not just to us, but to every human being and indeed to all creation. That's a pretty good purpose. That's a pretty fine thing to live for. I don't know if you've heard the name of um, Rick Warren. Does that name mean any, anything to anybody? Um, <clears throat> he's a Baptist minister. That's not a bad thing to be, by the way. He's a, a, bad, um, a Baptist minister. He's American. That's not a bad thing to be either. And he's a Californian. And he's got this big church, Saddleback Community Church in California. Been very influential because he's written a whole series of books. And they've usually got the word purpose in the title. So... The one that everybody seems to know is the Purpose Driven Church. Anybody heard that title? Some people have probably read it. Lots of churches have studied it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a good read. And he's written a few others. Uh, the Purpose Driven Life, 40 Days of Purpose, The Purpose Driven Nation. Now, Rick Warren is not well thought of by everybody. Not everybody likes the word driven, for instance. The Purpose Driven church. They think we shouldn't be driven, but actually we're all driven by something if you think about it. And I rather like uh, Rick Warren. Of course, the real reason why people don't like him is not because of that. It's because uh, he sells so many books. And people in the academic world in particular, they, they're a bit jealous of the millions of books that he's managed to sell. Anyway, I'm going to go into competition with Rick Warren. I like Rick Warren. Now, there's a particular reason why I like Rick Warren. It's not just his books. It's that I once met Rick Warren. This is the hand that shook the hand. Well, actually, it isn't the hand that shook the hand. This is the body that got hugged by Rick Warren. And it happened just over 10 years ago when I was in Birmingham and I was attending the Baptist World Alliance Centennial Congress. Impressive. And Rick Warren was there. And there I was one evening after one of the evening meetings, somewhere up above the bleachers, I think they're called, talking to somebody, I forget who it was, minding my own business. Suddenly this great big man, about six foot six, about 20 stone, bears down upon me and hugs me and says, Hi, Nigel. I don't know how he got to know my name. Well, I was wearing a badge, so that proves <laughs> it. And then he walks off. And I said to the person I was with, who was that? And said, that was Rick Warren. And ever since then, I've kind of felt mystically bonded to <laughs> Rick Warren. 
as if there's some sort of mystic bond between here and California. And I like Rick Warren, but I want to beat him. I want to write a book called The Purpose Driven Universe. Because that's the kind of universe we're living in. Not an accidental one. Not a meaningless one. Not a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. That's a Shakespearean reference, by the way, and it was 400 years yesterday since he died, so I thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> That's about the only bit of Shakespeare I know. But It is a meaningful universe. God has a purpose, and he's working that purpose out. And you and I can be part of that purpose. And you and I, as mere human beings... We can live at our best when we resonate with the purpose of God and bring our lives into harmony with that which God wills and purposes for all things. That was point one. Shall I give you another point? Here's an even better point. This purpose of God is unimaginably generous. Now, in this section, you have permission to get excited, to look happy, to feel good, because it's all legitimate. God has a remarkable purpose, which is overwhelmingly generous. So generous that you and I find it hard to comprehend that God can be like this. And that purpose is indicated to us here in verse 31 and verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is it, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. How about that then? The God who gave us his own son in an act of unimaginable love and grace. It says here, will also with him, in him, through him, by him, give us all things. And when it says all things, it seems not to leave anything out. Because all things is all things. Can you imagine anything more generous than that? A God who gives absolutely everything to those whom he loves. This is the generous love of God. This is the kind of God we worship. This is the purpose of God, to bring everything, all things, to a point in the future that he has planned, where everything is bestowed upon us, and everything that we are given is good. This is why we love God. This is why we worship God. Because he has, first of all, loved us, and been so generous to us. Uh, you wouldn't believe that, my, by the way, by looking at some Christians. Um, 
The purpose of God is revealed in the Son of God. If you were to look at creation, you wouldn't necessarily deduce what the purpose of all things is. You might suspect that there is a purpose, but you wouldn't necessarily know what it is. If you were to examine the course of human history and everything that we've done, you wouldn't necessarily deduce from history that there is such a purpose. But that purpose is becoming visible. Now, I like this building. I've always liked um, the building here and... It's a great place to worship in and to gather in. Um, Not every Christian meeting place is like this. Um, For some reason in the 19th century, uh, Baptists, we are Baptists here, aren't we? Kind of. Um, (laughs) For some reason in the 19th century, we went Gothic. Now, 400 years ago, when Baptists began, they were very simple people. I don't mean simple-minded. I mean simple in their taste. They, they believed in the beauty of simplicity. And they had meeting places, meeting houses, which were simple, beautiful little places. But then in the 19th century, they began to become wealthy because they were liberated, you see. They were liberated from civil discriminations along with the Catholics. And then they began to become captains of industry and uh, to produce lots of wealth. And once they became wealthy, they began to say to each other, now that we're respectable, let's go Gothic. Let's go like the Anglicans. Let's build towers and spires. Now, I don't like Gothic. I'm much happier with the simple things. I like this building. But there's one thing to be said for Gothic. Just one thing. (laughs) That across the breadth and length of this country, across the whole of Europe, everywhere you go, you'll see spires and towers that point upwards. And which point to the fact that the purpose of all things is not found within ourselves, but beyond ourselves, in the God who made all things and who is so infinitely generous towards us. That this is where the good life is to be found in God's own self. But of course, the buildings are not really the point. It's not the buildings, it's the people in the buildings who are meant to be the signs, who are meant to point upwards, who are meant by their witness to proclaim to the generations around about us that God has a purpose and we can be part of it. And it's an infinitely generous purpose. I've been a Christian now for over 50 years, and uh, I've met some wonderful, wonderful people in those times. I I think uh, some great people. Just occasionally, however, I confess that I've met somebody in the Christian church who I found difficult. You know, if they'd been baptized at all, it was obviously in lemon juice that they were baptized. (laughs) Because... They're mean mean and puckered and narrow. Now, I know there's nobody like that in Lynn Baptist Church. (laughs) Heaven forfend that there should be anybody like that in Lynn Baptist Church. But believe me, there are a few around. And they are a living contradiction of what it means to be made in the image of Jesus Christ 
and therefore in the image of the one who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our God is a generous God. And that means if we are to resemble God, as he's revealed in his son Jesus Christ, we are to be a generous people who give, who love, who care, who share, who are for others, who love God and love their neighbor as themselves. And we are to be the sign to the generations in which we live that God has a purpose. What a wonderful video that was about mercy ships. There's a sign, just one of many, many acts which show to the world that God is good. Now, I've got a movement that I started a few years ago, and I'd like you to become a member of it today. I'm looking to recruit all of you uh, to this movement, so you needn't worry too much. Uh, There's no subscription, so you don't have to pay anything. There's no website, so you don't have to go online for anything. There's no newsletter, so you won't have anything dropping through your letterbox. Actually, there's no membership, um, really. It's, uh, it's a very amorphous movement. But I, I call it this, and I'll have to explain what I mean by it. I call it protest theism. Now, what is protest theism? Well, protest theism is the opposite of protest atheism. And protest atheism is a movement that's been around for a long time, but it came to a head in the middle of the 20th century, in which the argument was this, that there is so much pain and suffering in our world that there cannot possibly be a good God, because a good God would not allow so much pain that we see around about us. Therefore, because we protest against the pain, we're going to abolish God. We're going to deny the existence of God in the name of anger, protest against the way things are. Does it seem familiar to anybody? Actually, I was reading the Radio Times the other day and I came across an interview with Stephen Fry, who is one of uh, our national treasures. And um, in the interview, he's asked a number of questions, and one is about God. And uh, it says this, despite playing God in the 1993 short film Sylvia Hates Sam, Fry has a difficult relationship with God. In an interview with Irish television, Fry asked what he would say if he came face to face with the creator, replied, why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world? which is so full of injustice and pain. That's protest atheism. We reject God. I don't know what he's been reading, by the way. Well, actually, I do know what he's been reading. He's been reading Richard Dawkins, The God of Delusion. He's certainly not been reading the Bible. Because the God in whom we believe and the God of whom the Bible speaks is not a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God by any means, but a God who gave his only son, and with him will freely give us all things. You cannot imagine a more gracious God than the God who is the father of Jesus Christ. So my movement is the opposite, protest theism. 
It says this. We believe in God as our protest against the idea that the world is meaningless and empty and going nowhere. And actually, if there is no God, then there is no guarantee that this world is anything other than a place in which pain and injustice and hatred, death and darkness will finally triumph. And everything we love, everybody we love, everything that we hold dear, everything that human beings have uh, achieved and created in art and in so many other ways, all of these things, according to the atheist, are destined to perish as if they have never been. Because there is no guarantee that this world is anything other than on its way to death. That's not very cheerful, is it? I protest. And my protest takes the form of believing in a God who has a purpose which is infinitely generous. More generous than anybody can conceive. And it's for that reason, amongst many other reasons, that today I believe in God. God is the guarantee of something better and something greater and something more wonderful. God is infinitely generous. And that's his purpose. And here's the last thing to say. That this God, of whom Romans 8 speaks, of whom Jesus Christ spoke, of whom the Christian church speaks, that his purpose is irresistible. Now, I don't mean by that that nobody can ever resist or prevent or delay the purpose of God coming to pass. That's what we've been doing. That's what Israel did in the Old Testament. That's what church history has been doing for 2,000 years as we have failed to cooperate with God. And by our human stubbornness and sinfulness, we have got in the way of that which God wills to achieve. No, we can resist God. But we cannot finally resist God. We cannot ultimately stand in the way. Because God is all-powerful. God is able to achieve his purpose. Even if that purpose be delayed, he's able to bring it to pass. Because that's what happens when you're God. Your will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is where Paul takes us in this passage. Because he comes to this point where he says, who can stand in the way of these things? Who is able to prevent these things happening? And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Not at all. No, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, like nor any other business in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
God's purpose is finally irresistible. Now, it may not come to fulfillment in my lifetime. It may not come to fulfillment in the lifetime of these delightful children that we've seen today. But it will come to pass in the fullness of time when God says, enough, and brings this creation into the glory and liberty that we even now have begun to enjoy. You know, Christians are the most optimistic people there are. Actually, I'm not an optimist. There was an interview about the Queen the other day. I don't know if anybody saw it. Is the Queen an optimist? Princess Anne was asked. Oh, I don't think she is an optimist. She's not a pessimist, but she's not an optimist. And that's me, really. I'm not an optimist in ordinary things. Most of the time, uh, I think things are going to wrong, going to go wrong. Uh, if uh, if I phone the plumber and ask him to phone me back, he's not going to phone me back. That's my assumption. And actually, that's happened this week. <laughs> but theologically, in terms of God, I am a total optimist. That God will bring these things to pass. And therefore, I can be content. And I can trust him. And because I know he will bring these things to pass, it begins to make sense of some of the things that happen. Now, there's this wonderful saying here about, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When there is this purpose, everything else will one day fit, even if at the moment we cannot see how. Friedrich Nietzsche is a German philosopher who was an atheist and uh, a rather negative philosopher, but strangely enough, I find him saying things that I agree with. And one of the things he said was this, uh, if there is a why, you can cope with any how. Now, what he meant by that was this. Imagine childcare. Uh, take childcare on a moment-by-moment basis through the day, and it's pretty gruesome, isn't it, the way a small child, um, you have to cope with it, changing nappies, screaming, throwing food around, tantrums, and so on. And you have to put up with that. And it raises the question, why do any of us bother? And the idea is because there is something higher, that that child is destined to become a good human being. And because we have a why, we can cope with anyhow along the way. And likewise, believing that God has this good purpose for things helps us to cope with the difficult things that come our way. We trust in God and God's ability to bring to pass that which God has promised. Well, that's it. Um, There are many other things here, but that's enough for today, I think. So what do you do with this? Um, What am I going to ask you to do? Now, they say that if you're going to be a good preacher, you should give people something to do. At the end of a service, you know, give them homework. Give them something to do. I've never particularly followed that dictum myself. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than this. I ask you to believe this. To believe it. That's how you join that protest theism movement, by the way. Not by paying a fee, but by believing it. By having confidence in your heart.
that these things are true. And these things will come to pass. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall indeed be well. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you and we adore you. For you are higher and greater and better and more loving and more merciful and more just and more holy than we can even begin to imagine. And we come to this place today with each other, this meeting place with our sisters and our brothers. And we come together with one heart and soul through Christ our Lord to give you our praise and our thanks. And we pray that you would help us to live purposefully and to bear witness to your purpose and to help others become a part of this purpose as we live out our lives here as Lynn Baptist Church. May your blessing rest upon us and upon all who love you with love undying. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.